Welcome to this week's edition of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, consider throwing us a dollar a month at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Or if not, maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. Today, Taylor and I are pleased to speak with Henry Summers Hall, a reader in the Department of Politics, International Relations, and Philosophy at Royal Holloway University of London. He's the co-translator of Solomon Maimon's essay on Transcendental Philosophy, the co-editor of A Thousand Plateaus in Philosophy, and the author of Hegel, Deleuze, and the Critique of Representation, Deleuze's Difference in Repetition, an Edinburgh Philosophical Guide, and his newest work published this year, Judgment and Sense in Modern French Philosophy, a new reading of six thinkers. Henry, thanks so much for joining Taylor and I on this week's edition of the Happy Hour. Oh no, thank you for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be here. Lovely to have you. Sorry that you're experiencing what would be perhaps a normal <laughs> Texas summer <laughs> uh, or something like that. I, I'm not sure what what is 40 degrees Celsius. What is that? I, I could wonder. do it in my head, but but I I'm trying to think in my head. I'll you have know, to do this uh, nine fifths conversion. plus 32 something like that. I assume I don't, it's very I don't hot. I think it's that hot. I would say for you guys, <laughs> it feels quite hot for us. 40 is equivalent to 104 degrees Fahrenheit, which Woo! is quite That's... hot. Now it's been, it hasn't hit 104 very much. We've been like in the 102 range a lot over the last maybe three or four weeks. So that is definitely, <laughs> that is no fun. For an island known for right? its, its fog and rain, that, that seems uh, a bit hot. Henry, we always like to start, and as you noticed with our kind of bullet points, we always like to start with just getting to know you a little bit better and getting to know some of your memories, some of maybe an anecdote about coming into contact, your encounter with philosophy. I always find these stories interesting. So I want you to be able to take as long as you want and sort of give us a little guided mm -hmm. tour of your personal experiences and how philosophy kind of kind of grabbed you and, and in extension, where Deleuze fits into that picture. I suppose, like, I mean, I was thinking about this question, and, and one thing that struck me was that's really strange is, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about this very much at all. Really? You know, yeah, it's kind of like, it was, I was thinking, gosh, what am I doing philosophy? And I thought, I thought, in a way, you know, intuitively, I've always kind of looked around me, and the question's always been the other way around, you know, why are these people not? <laughs> I love that. History? And, you know, it's kind of thinking about it. For me, it's always been, I've always been really interested in, or obsessively when I was younger really concerned about the lack of foundations for sense you know the, the apparent lack of foundations for the sense that we find in the world particularly yes. like sense, you know what one should do and I think you know I mean I started really reading philosophy probably about 14 15 with uh, Sartre's novels yes my mom had like tons of novels all around the house 
And I don't think she was particularly interested in such, but I remember just reading Nausea because I just read a lot of books. It was just mind-blowing. I can remember going to school. I read it. And I found a copy of um, The Roads to Freedom, you uh-huh. know, the trilogy. And they, they had the first the first of those in the library. And, and I finished that. And I, I kind of went to the librarian and I said, uh, can I have the second, the second volume? She said, uh, no one's ever asked for the second volume. <laughs> we never bought it. So, so, I mean, for me, it was it was kind of quite natural. And I think I think these questions about how we make sense of the world, to me, have always been really important. And, right. and I think Warwick, in a sense, was the, the natural place to answer these questions. When I started in my first year mm-hmm. as an undergraduate, I remember being taught, of course, by Keith Ansel Pearson. He had been sort of rowed to drown to do the, the first year introductory course, which, you know, it's kind of like five weeks of John Locke and then five weeks of Descartes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Got to eat your vegetables, right? <laughs> he chose to do five weeks on Bergson's matter and memory. That makes sense. And then some Nietzsche to follow it up. And I just remember, you know, this is insane. I mean, it was like we, we did this matter and memory stuff. And you know, Bergson begins by saying, forget everything you know about realism and idealism. We know nothing about realism. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> It's like first term, first first week of the course. So it was really good. And then, you know, going through, I think you just get, you get caught in these places. It was a really nice mix of Anglo-American philosophy, uh-huh. which um, I didn't particularly enjoy. Logic, which I really loved. Okay. And, and uh, continental philosophy. And, you know, I went through that undergraduate. And then, yeah, the, M- the MA was, was amazing. It was, it was uh, Keith teaching... I guess stuff from German life it would have been back then. The know, vitalism stuff. Yeah, all of, all of that stuff with the really strong Bergson. Mm-hmm. And, and I think Delander was just released his virtual philosophy. Okay. And Miguel Beistegui was teaching a course quite heavily influenced by that. And um, So you got some Heidegger from Beistegui with, he would have had it, what, his book on Deleuze and Heidegger around that time too, right? Yeah, that was a few years later, actually. That's oh, okay, was, okay. That's when I was doing my PhD. It was quite a worrying moment because you know it's on it's on kind of heidegger mm-hmm. and Deleuze with big chunks of hegel okay so i was about halfway through my phd on Deleuze and hegel and suddenly you know this amazing professor in my department releases this book that's you know investigating the Deleuze, hegel and heidegger relation but luckily he did it in a very different way so that's right it. but it was, it was great he was teaching um all this delanda you know the sort of scientific Deleuze, and um I think he was trying to work out what was going on in that text himself. Mm-hmm. So we very much had a kind of collaborative approach to to those seminars, and it was it was really brilliant. So I quite naturally moved to the PhD after that at Warwick. I mean, initially I was working on Anglo American philosophy and, and Deleuze, but just through you know one of these weird accidental things about administration, I ended up working with Stephen Holgate. Yeah. Who, who's just brilliant Hegel, you know, absolutely amazing Hegel scholar. And um, so, yeah, ended up with a PhD on Deleuze and Hegel. That's the now, story. I don't, know if, I don't know if there are any anecdotes in there. Two things, at least, just to stick with the, at least your upbringing. Uh, one, I'm I'm not going to speak for Coop here, but I'm sure that in the back of his mind, he's wondering about one of the specters of Warwick, which would be, in, in my mind, it's a Voldemort. But uh, <laughs> do you have any? Did you have any interactions with Nick Land? If you um, didn't, we can skip that question. Move on. I I don't I don't think so. I mean, I think he must have left around the time I arrived as an okay. Undergraduate. But I mean, his PhD students were still there. 
And then I think what what happened that was interesting was, um, you know, he was very interested in the the later work and, you know, the sort of philosophical approaches. But you had this real centre for for Deleuze that came through Nick Land England. I mean, I know Keith Ansel Pearson started working on Deleuze because of Nick Land. Interesting. I didn't know that. That's what I've heard anyway. I mean, maybe you'll have to ask him, I suppose. But um <laughs> But, you know, so that that was, he created the scene. But then afterwards, you got people like Stephen Hawgate coming in mm-hmm. uh, and really orienting it back towards the kind of post-Kantian stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was a really amazing time to be there after Nick Land, I think, you know, because there were all the, you know, he'd kind of created all of these currents and they were still resolving themselves within the department. You know, there was a whole range of different work particularly on German idealism being done, some really fantastic PhD students. And people working on Deleuze and Deleuze and Fichte and Bergson and you know, people working on Hegel and Deleuze and Heidegger and just yeah. really interesting stuff. But everyone, I think, was working from the perspective of philosophical problems yes, rather than the kind of history of philosophy so much, which kind of really suited me. Deleuze himself has a very interesting way of thinking about the history of philosophy, whether it be as collage, portraiture, as sort of producing monstrosities or whatever. But it seems more suited to Deleuze's own endeavors to focus, as you say, on problems. And I suppose the follow-up, one of the things that I just realized that, you know, you say that you initially were working on sort of Deleuze and Anglo-American philosophy, which Mm. brings to light why... One of the things that I found very helpful was you bringing in Russell's theory of types in order to juxtapose that with Aristotle and Kant in order to give another flavor, another sort of potential interlocutor that perhaps Deleuze himself doesn't really focus on, but that actually brings another aspect to another way of thinking through a kind of quote unquote traditional logic that Deleuze is sidelining. So was that part of your earlier project? Gosh, I don't know, actually. I mean, it's a, I think probably not. I mean, I was, I was originally work interested in really the difficulties in representing time. Interesting. So, so quite a kind of Bergsonian mm-hmm. project in many ways. And I think, no, I mean, the, the stuff on Russell, I mean, we would, we'd just done a lot of logic. And yes. my logic professor was... Um, uh, one of Karl Popper's students, actually. <laughs> okay, okay. Amazing. And he was brilliant. And he was he was very much a kind of anti-analytic philosopher. So, you know, he held that whenever you build an argument based on logical principles, either the argument just presupposes what you've included in the premises. In the mm-hmm. you know, so it begs the question, mm-hmm. or else it's an invalid argument. Now, Interesting. If you take that seriously, that, you know, the conclusion is already contained in the premises or the argument is an invalid argument, that kind of undermines much of the the kind of the basis for the focus on logical argument. So I think looking at things like logical paradoxes was kind of really fundamental to the kind of logic we looked at. So it's really through that. But I think the the same issue really runs through you know, Hegel, Deleuze. Yep. And... And uh, well, I mean, Kant as well, all of these thinkers and mm-hmm. Aristotle, this issue, yeah. of, you know, how does one reconcile systematicity and totality? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for all of them, or for most of them, if you have a totalized view, certainly in terms of kind of classical logic or subject predicate structures, then you end up with contradictions. And um, 
you know, for, for Russell, that led to the theory of types that prevents the notion of uh, self-referential statements, propositions. Right. For Aristotle and uh, Kant and for Deleuze, it kind of leads to this notion that you can't have a totalized system in the same logic. And for Hegel, it, it involves the notion that totality necessarily involves the moment of contradiction. All of these things come together, I think, in this question of systematicity and totality and self-reference. That's actually wonderful and very, very clear. And it makes sense why when Deleuze says he thinks philosophy is a system, it's just a different, it's a totally nuanced and different idea of system, right? A system is heterogenesis or however he, you know, wants to, to frame it. And mm -hmm. in that sense, he, he kind of sounds like Hegel, as you say, right, in this sort of <laughs> mo movement, except it does it privilege contradiction or or whatnot? We can get it to the Hegel stuff, but I, I really like how you how you put that. And I thought it was interesting when I was finishing your book on Hegel and Deleuze, and I kind of went back and saw that you in the acknowledgments had mentioned Holgate as your advisor. That also mm -hmm. gave a kind of maybe a, a sort of deeper impetus why Deleuze and Hegel would capture your interest in not only insofar as Deleuze targets Hegel in many ways, especially in difference of repetition, if not elsewhere, like in Eastern philosophy, but that Polgate would have influenced your thinking and given you, I assume, a good rearing in Hegel. Yeah, now we had this amazing process. And I think, I mean, it just kind of evolved quite naturally where, I mean, I think from the outset, or from quite early on, I, you know, we, we realised that Hegel and Deleuze were, were not going to we were not going to get a synthesis of the two. They were going to be quite opposed. And so, I mean, I wrote this first chapter. It was really awful on the Marxist <laughs> You know, it's never appeared anywhere. I've, I've just never gone back to it. It just sits in a file on my computer. But after that, we've gone into this, this structure where I would send him a draft of a chapter and he would send me like six pages of, oh, wow. of that chapter. And so I would go through and I would, you know, literally go through and fix all of those problems, you know, so it'd be this, you know, what does this mean? You know, how does this relate to this earlier claim? It's contradictory. Hegel doesn't say this. And I'd go through it all and I'd send him another draft and uh, I'd get like another six pages. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, <laughs> the, that's the dialectic, right, I guess. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, we would do it kind of three or four times until until we were kind of bored of it. I mean, yeah. it wouldn't we wouldn't reach the point where we agreed. <laughs> um, and I think... Which is okay. We, Right. Which is absolutely fine. And I think uh, we, you know, it worked really well. I mean, it really strengthened my writing. And, um, yeah, you know, it just it just moves me from a kind of a polemicist to someone who really thought about how one says these things clearly to someone yeah. who is not, you know, it doesn't have a natural interest in this stuff, you know. How do you kind of make someone who's got no interest in Deleuze you know, thinks Deleuze is a charlatan. Right. How do, you, how do you try and create some some point where you can say, well, actually, like, here's a problem. Here's a real problem. And here's where Deleuze is doing something that's really innovative. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was good. It was a really good process. Yeah. And see, this is this actually clarifies kind of what I said to you in our preliminary discussion before we started recording, where I said that I kind of appreciated your your mode of exposition, your clarity, so that it's always good to have a professor who's willing to be hands-on and to sort of guide you, if not in the writing process itself, at least in the the mode in which you, you're sort of working. And as you mm -hmm. say, I can imagine, because I started off this way, I think, 
it's very important to move from a polemical mode to even if a little bit of polemics is okay, uh, but to move towards, as you're saying, this more encompassing and more problematic way of working. Because when I started, uh, you always have a little bit of fire and a little bit of passion. And sometimes you're a little bit prejudiced, if you will, towards one thinker over another. And so polemic does feel like the meat potatoes when really in actuality, it's it's just your way of of venting your interest. So to be able to move past that and maybe sublate it, if you will, right? A little bit of the alpha, alpha bung, keep some of the passion, but do away with some of the polemic and somebody should tell Badu this, right? Because I think he's, <laughs> he's a little too plump. No, um, Cooper, are you going to say something? I'm sorry. Well, I just wanted to go back a little bit and say next week our guest is going to be, I don't know if you're even familiar with Nicholas Blinko, but um, Land was his PhD advisor at, at Warwick. So that should be mm-hmm. quite interesting. I guess one of the aspects of Land's work that I find most interesting is like this discussion of time and investigation of time via Kant and Deleuze which I think we can get into later relative to the thermodynamics, but I just think that that's mm-hmm. something that I'm really fascinated by relative to sort of the cinema works. Yeah, well, I hope, I hope we can talk about Kant and Deleuze and time a bit mm-hmm. later. Perhaps, oh, for sure. One of my, you know, it's like one of, the, one of the most interesting points of their intersection for me, that notion of time that Deleuze digs out from Kant in particular. Well, definitely there's something that yeah. I want to get get into at some point, but not to jump too far ahead. Um, yeah. But uh, to anticipate, it's yeah, a, exactly the anticipations of perception, right? Where, <laughs> Precisely. Where I'm not sure to ask this now or to keep anticipating. I did want to know about your. You responded a little bit about this in our draft, but I wanted to know a little bit about mime and how that project got started. I mean, as a fellow translator, I like to talk sometimes about these things, uh, the nuts and bolts, but. Uh, was this suggested to you by a colleague, by Polgate? Was this in your own interest in Kant's relation to Deleuze? Because obviously for Deleuze, even if he relies on gay rule, as you point out, mostly for his subsumption of Maimon, it seems mm-hmm. like he finds in Maimon an ally, if you will, for correcting Kant or for, <laughs> for moving past Kant. So yeah, just I'm curious about that, you know, what the translation, whether or not that's interesting to you, but but the work of Maimon himself, where that fits into your trajectory. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I mean, I think I said this before, I mean, and the questions you said, I think, you know, some of these projects, you sometimes take on projects because particularly when you're a grad student, they just kind of, they look interesting. Yeah. And I think myself and, and my friend Merton, he was working on, gosh, I can't remember, some, something like economic, some kind of economic philosophy. Okay. I mean, you, you, you can look him up. Okay. something completely non-continental. And we, you know, we were good friends and we just noticed this book hadn't, I noticed this book hadn't been translated and it just seemed like such an important text. So we just, we just started translating it and, you know, it's it yeah. it pretty awful what we did long chunks of it and then and that's then how it was, starts that's how it starts right you, uh... <laughs> absolutely you know you've got to start somewhere and yes and uh and we bumped into i bumped into alistair welshman who who's a, done lots of schopenhauer translation okay and i mean one of the weird thing about warwick students ex-warwick students is um when you go to these Deleuze conferences this certainly used to be the case i used to just find myself having a conversation with someone in the corner and you would find out after five minutes that they'd been at Warwick because yeah. there was a kind of a shared spirit to to the approach that people came out with. Interesting. And, 
And, you know, and so he said that they were, him and uh, Nick Midgley were working on a translation too. We, you know, we just decided to to work together on it. So that's how the translation came about. And, you know, Alistair is responsible for, I mean, it's, a, it's more readable than the German, I'd say. And that's down to Alistair Welchman and Nick Midgley for doing, you know, really excellent job and polishing the stuff we did. You said it's more readable than the German? Yeah. That's an achievement. <laughs> I mean, my one kind of like, you know, Lithuanian, uh, he learns right. German from reading Kant's. That's weird. <laughs> we had John Rofe on and he kind of told us a little bit about this, but I didn't know that he actually learned German from reading Kant. Yeah, he, That's... Was, yeah, he was a character. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, he, he left his family behind to move to Berlin. He's very strange. Okay. Um, but he's, um, you know, he's brilliant. But um, in terms of Deleuze, it's really just this kind of interesting fusion of Leibniz and Kant, which I think, you know, I think my views moved on a bit since, since then, but, you know, it's certainly one of the fundamental moments is that you can see the notion that determination involves differentials being brought into some kind of relationship that generates real quantitative things at the other end. Yeah, the genetic element. Yeah, exactly. So you, you get past this Kantian problem. It's not a problem for Kant. Right. But it's a problem for the post-Kantians mm -hmm. that, you know, the transcendental field looks like what it generates, the field full of kind of object structures and predicate structures. You know, Maimon finds a way of resolving that through the calculus in a way that, that kind of borrows from Leibniz, but reincorporates Leibniz into a, a kind of post-Kantian framework. Mm -hmm. Kantian framework. And it's very, very different from the kind of solution one finds in Hegel. It's very different from, from what Hegel does to try and resolve these residual problems from um, Kant. So that's, that's, I think, the reason why Deleuze takes it up. Yeah. I mean, I think the difficulty with going too far down that reading is that you, you end up sort of pushing Deleuze's notion of intensity to one side. Interesting. Uh, I think. But no, I mean, my, the Maimon's really interesting, but, but in a way it was one of those projects that kind of emerges when one's a graduate student and, you know, you've got all of this time. Yeah. Um, and so you just end up taking on things and, you know, it's, it's great. We did it, <laughs> but it's in the past. What I find interesting about Maimon is, first of all, he's kind of sometimes fully left out of the picture of German idealism and the post-Kantian lineage. And so he forms, he's one of those figures that Deleuze always seems to bring into dialogue that is the alternative minor voices in the history of philosophy. And uh, I think that's obviously a credit to Deleuze's advisors as well. As you point out, he's following Gay Rule's uh, book on, on Maimon, but that, that doesn't necessarily diminish it. It just, it helps to, um, it helps to strengthen that lineage of, I don't want to say he's rehabilitating, but he's sort of resurrecting some some names that even at the time when he was writing, Bergson had fallen out of fashion, right, in France. Uh, Nietzsche was only starting to get a sort of resurgence. You know, even like his way of turning to Feuerbach, for example, seems antiquated mm -hmm. or seems out of lockstep because it, it's almost like assumed that Marx would have dealt with that mm -hmm. in the theses or something like this. It's interesting to see Deleuze's sort of minor <laughs> thinkers and to include Maimon among them. And sometimes even 
in volumes on Deleuze and his sort of philosophical heritage, sometimes even Maimon gets left out. And I think that it's important, as you say, for mm. the differential and the differential calculus, but also for this insistence on the genetic element, this insistence on that the transcendental, you know, the condition can't look like the conditioned. Um, that's something that Deleuze really insists upon, at least in the in the early, in his works before Guattari. And I'm not sure if that impetus falls away just that it it's no longer sort of a nail that he hits you know in those two books in 68 and 69 and difference repetition and logic of mm -hmm. sense i agree i mean that's the book on difference and repetition you know one of the great things of writing it mm -hmm. was um i was teaching an ma class at manchester metropolitan university which um it's a really nice it was a really nice course and we had some great students but we had lots of students who maybe had not studied philosophy before mm -hmm. or heard studied it a long long time ago and i taught this course and we taught it for about two i taught it for about two years and you know in the second year the students who took it the first time came back of course <laughs> you have to <laughs> yeah because you know you want to find out what happens but we would spend a week looking at a section of difference and repetition and then the week after we would look at or thoughts or maybe the other way around so mm -hmm. we'd have a week on aristotle and then we'd have a week looking at how Deleuze I, talks about aristotle i love that so, you know we, we covered so many so many philosophers, you know, minor and major, and so many aspects of philosophy that you wouldn't, you know, you just wouldn't encounter in a mm -hmm. normal education by just, you know, following these kind of breadcrumb trails through yes. writing. And, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, it, it's a great education, but there's also something just really, really fun about seeing how all this stuff develops and fits together. And like you say, all of these minor thinkers, it's brutal. It's interesting that, teaching a course that includes students who wouldn't necessarily be Deleuzeans or, or wouldn't necessarily be writing their PhD on Deleuze or even necessarily having a philosophical background, that you have to find innovative ways to sort of get to the heart of the matter. And it's kind of, this is one of the I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, Deleuze, I love the breadcrumb trails that he leaves us in the footnotes and in his sort of allusions. But sometimes there's a sense in which Deleuze himself sort of assumes one knows what he's doing. He doesn't always <laughs> demonstrate, or at least he doesn't always give ample background for a lot of the claims he's making, which which makes it very difficult. And it's he kind of assumes that you're going to be able to fly along with him. And so it's good to be able to have an audience that you can use, whether it be as like little experimental subjects that you can try to unpack a lot of what's really densely populated in Deleuze's work. Mm. And I think that this is also when I talked to Dan and Charles Duvall about the lectures, that it seems like Deleuze's writing is so much more densely packed. And whereas in the lectures, he's able to sort of give some background to a lot of his arguments. And mm. I think that that's, that's why courses like what you taught and the guides are so necessary because there is so much there. It's really overflowing, you know, the books, it can't be contained. And so it's really necessary to step back and to make sure, you know, when he's talking about, like, for example, in the first chapter of Difference, where he's talking about Porphyry and, and Aristotle and, and specific difference and all this, so much of it is so densely packed that it's it's hard to know, first of all, whose audience it is, because it can be difficult to um, to follow if, if you're not already steeped in that tradition. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I'm I'm doing. I mean, it's interesting doing work on the later 
philosophy. So I'm doing a little bit of work on a thousand plateaus at the moment. Yeah. And, um, you know, absolutely what you say for a start, the, the lectures are just so helpful. Yes. Because they just kind of, he just explains what the problem is. You know, mm -hmm. why am I bringing in this material? Well, for these reasons, you know, why am I bringing in marginalism? Well, because, you know, we can't understand exchange in terms of production, because I want to argue that, you know, archaic societies aren't organised in terms of modes of production. And yet yep. they still, so you get all of this stuff, but, but you know, you also see, I mean, I, I've also seen moving away from philosophy, you know, just, just how difficult it is because, you know, I don't know the sociology. Um, I see. So you look at you look at the War Machine chapter, and it, it's mm -hmm. all these sources that uh, you have to kind of read and piece together, and you know, like orientate them. You know, it's like having jigsaw puzzles, and you have to hold them up and turn them around so they're facing the right way before you can even yeah. Get them I mean, the plateaus are kind of like that too, right? You know, the way they describe the writing of a thousand plateaus, right? That I think Deleuze is the one who says this, right? Where certain lines in one plateau kind of trailed like ants marching into other plateaus and so there is this interspersed uh, this imbricated rhizomatic text as you say like a jigsaw puzzle that sometimes it's hard to consider one plateau in isolation even if it's got mm -hmm. salient distinctive points there is this resonance throughout which makes it it's got to make it a maddening text to to write on and yet at the same time so thrilling it's part of the challenge, but it's also part of the, yeah. the fun. So I'm glad to hear that you're writing on that. Do you have like a specific angle or a specific sort of uh, problem? What's the framework for your book on A Thousand Plateaus going to be? I suppose the question is, what's this book about? Um, I mean, in, in loose sense, I know like that you can't, you know, that's not a sense that Deleuze and Guattari would appreciate um, because obviously it's, it's a rhizome. Yeah. It's not about anything. But I think I've read too many times uh, like Badiou and Zizek yeah. talking about it as if you can ignore the later work. Or uh, the co the co-authored work too. Yeah, right? the co yeah, absolutely. And I think I think I just want to know what's what's going on. So I'm just working through and putting together a manuscript that just tries to to tie it all together and to to see to see um what the argument is. And I mean yeah. maybe that's not a particularly Deleuze Guattarian approach. But it's one that it's one that I found, you know, quite fruitful, and it's interesting personally. And it's really fascinating to see, you know, you look at the nomadic distribution in difference and repetition. Yes. And then you you look at the war machine, and at the outset, you you sort of feel like Deleuze has kind of tacked on all of this sociological information to the structure mm -hmm. of the early work, and then gradually, you know, it becomes more and more convincing mm -hmm. that that there is something to this notion of the nomadic in sociological terms it's you know it's really really powerful and when you look at this stuff on uh, the stuff from Michelle Serre mm -hmm. really I'm just trying to work out what's going on a bit like I mean that's really why I wrote the difference repetition book similarly yeah. you know what can I take from this what's happening in this text so there's not an angle as such I'm just trying to read the sources and the text until I can think to myself well this is what they mean here and then I sort of stop and move on to the next section. You know, what do they mean when they talk about this? You know, what does what does overcoding mean? And it's difficult to tie this stuff down. And so I just want to know what it means. I think that's part of what Cooper and I did with our when we've had our kind of longer book series. We've had Anti-Oedipus, which we're hopefully going to finish up at some point. Uh, we've gone through mm. the first three chapters. 
We've done Symbolic Exchange and Death by Baudrillard. We've done Libidal Economy by Leotard. And a lot of what it is, is kind of working through together, trying to untie these things together, if you mm. will. And so much of it is, is not about claiming any, any mastery of these texts that are so dense and so sort of overfilled, again, with concepts, with claims, especially with someone like Leotard, it's hard to pin him down as a, in a declarative sentence. Even with Anti-Oedipus, which is another text that's, I mean, it rivals difference repetition in terms of its density, in terms of its creation of mm -hmm. concepts, right? And so a lot of it is this, even if, as you say, maybe that wouldn't be the most Maybe they would look down on it, if you will, to, to ask, what do they mean when they do this? If you can at least try to struggle together and try to piece together productively what mm. they mean, then you can also address in tandem what the text is doing, right? I mean, I think that it's a twofold thing because you can't necessarily get to what the text is doing, or what it can be used for, unless you can really struggle with what the meaning is. No, of course. I mean, I'm I'm looking. I mean, I'm actually looking forward to going back and listening to to your podcasts on Antiedipus because it's you know it's a text I've I've never felt comfortable with. So you know, I'm kind of interested in what you've made of it. Really, you actually, when you cited Antiedipus in the Reader's Guide, you brought Antiedipus in very productively in your working through of Freud and the three syntheses. Right, you turned to chapter four where they say some productive things about, uh, for example, death. Right. And the model of death. Don't underestimate yourself. And, and uh, in any case, yeah, I uh, we can keep moving on. I'll ask one more question and then potentially give give Coop a chance to jump in if he feels like it. But I, I, I did want to put one of the questions about this notion of what I call teratology of buggery or as he calls it, portraiture. He'll talk about it in terms of collage in the history of philosophy. And I'm wondering if your sense of if we take, for example, Hegel and Deleuze as sort of the incompatible thinkers who try to move past representation, is there a sense in which the bearded Hegel that Deleuze refers to, does Deleuze come out the other side with his own beard, with his own goatee, his own mustache? Just to think about this playfully, is there a sense in which you see finding compatible ways of discussing their incompatibilities, and yet they're convergence and divergence do you see sort of uh, our our picture of Deleuze coming out differently hopefully from your work in terms of Hegel and Deleuze I I think it's really difficult because I think you know I, I've been reading um what is philosophy a little bit yeah. and you know you look at conceptual personae mm -hmm. and you think these are these are, it's a really important moment where you know I've been working on Kierkegaard and Deleuze and, and at points yeah and you know, it's this the conceptual persona is kind of like this this moment that orients the problem in a particular way and you know, gives right. it a particular aspect. And then you look at you look at what he says about Hegel, what Deleuze and Guattari say about Hegel. And you know, once again, they say Hegel has no conceptual persona. Hmm. You know, concepts, there are kind of figures associated with concepts, but you know, and, and the, the implication there, I think, is just that Hegel never gets beyond representations of things you know there are never real problems that are kind of formed on this plane of innocence there are, there are always representations and i think that really kind of runs through the whole debate you know right from the beginning i mean if we go back to and you know another way of formulating the question of hegel and deleuze would be the, the one and the many you know how do we relate the one to the many and in a sense deleuze thinks that hegel is the last 
you know, the, the life support machine for kind of classical representation. Yeah. Because what you do is, you know, you can't resolve this connection between the one and the many without these contradictions that emerge. So what do you do? Well, you just accept that what unites the one and the many is the kind of process of contradiction, uh, a process of movement between terms. Now, for Deleuze, on the contrary, what, what one has to do is jettison that whole series of categories. You know, you yeah. jettison the one and the many and you have the notion of multiplicity, right? Not as an adjectival thing, but as a noun form. For Deleuze, in a way, you know, Hegel's not even an enemy. I mean, you, you look at someone like Descartes, and you know, De- Descartes does change. Deleuze's reading of Descartes changes, and you know, in right. the later, the figure of the meditations becomes kind of like the idiot. You know, whereas in the earlier work, he's the kind of universal subject, and he's the you know the, the bad guy. So there's a process of change there. But with Hegel, there just isn't. You know, Hegel is always this kind of, this kind of, I suppose, flat-footed philosopher. Who, one-dimensional, which is ironic. Absolutely. The, stereo, the image of the stereoscopic structure in difference and repetition. And, you know, Hegel never gets beyond representation. He just infinitizes it. Yeah, he's just like shoveling all this stuff under a massive rug in the living room. He says something when he's discussing Plato's dialogues. He talks about some of the dialogues, which he claims are propedeutic, right? Meant as kind of an instructive introduction to the dialectic. Take seriously the what is question. And that Hegel is sort of like the last one to take this question seriously. Is this another way of saying he's sort of the life support for representation, the last thinker of representation by glorifying the what is? I guess so. I mean, there is one moment where I suppose, you know, Deleuze recognises that for Hegel, there's a concept of alienation that goes beyond the true and the false. Mm. You know, so there is that. I think for Deleuze really, you know, Hegel is kind of the end of that process of representation. You know, it's the first, it's really the, the, infinitization of judgment and i think you know i mean my own view is that it's really that he's kind of right about that mm. um, and i suppose you know the, the other way of thinking of it is that you know hegel's the thinker of the kind of organicism as a as an yeah and in talking about teratology it's the cuvier gfois saint debate in a i was going to bring this up yes go on and so so you know cuvier holds that things are defined by functional relations between parts, where parts are defined by their place within the, the organism as a whole. Whereas Giffard Santelaire holds this notion that there's a kind of, what he calls a transcendental anatomy. Yeah. The, the structure underlying us and, and relating together different creatures is not defined by form or function. But for Giffard Santelaire, it's defined by the kind of relationship between the bones that, that make us up. Yeah. Or you could say... The relationships between proteins on a DNA strand, I suppose, would be mm-hmm. the reciprocal yeah, determination, about, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's not about form or function. It's about relations of parts on that strand. And I, I think Hegel pushes that kind of organic model, yeah, which is very powerful, but also very problematic as far as he can. He, he kind of puts all of his eggs in the organicist basket. Yeah. Whereas Deleuze thinks that ultimately that's you know, like a really dangerous misstep. Yeah. Yeah, because it can't give an explanation or a ground for evolution, right? Isn't this part of the problem of of Cuvier and Hegel is that it runs afoul when one is trying to talk about evolution, whether it be in a Darwinian sense or or, or otherwise? 
Mm, absolutely. I mean, like QBA is very clear that there can be no transformation of species. And, you know, that's because, in a sense, if you define creatures by functions, then you have these kind of these optimized creatures with, you know, where all the parts are defined by the functions. Then you have these kind of deserts between them. Where, right. where to move into that space would be to be de-optimized. And as, as you say, you also have this problem whereby what a part of the body is, is defined by its function. And evolution is, you know, deterritorialization. It's like something changes its function. So once you've defined something in functional terms, it's very difficult to explain the same thing changing function because changing function is changing what the thing is. I like that. And it, and it makes it makes sense because this is sort of how you culminate their their encounter in your in your book on Hegel and Deleuze, right? Is is this question over the organic. And so Cuvier and Santelaire become very important. And you can see this playing out again in A Thousand Plateaus in mm. the uh, the geology of morals, where one of the sort of encounters is again playing out Cuvier and Santelaire pro- I think more extensively than it is done in different rep- Petition. So that's kind of interesting that some of these these battles, if you will, that play out in Deleuze's earlier work, you see it reappear in his co-authored work with Guattari. Just to kind of piggyback on this kind of idea that you guys are discussing, how does something like, is it co-evolution? I'm just thinking of the crab form being this one that gets repeated within in nature and sort of this... Um, in a lot of divergent ways, like in it, this form is one that we see repeated in nature quite significantly. I don't know if that is something that we could sort of speculatively discuss relative I, to this this it, critique of evolution that you guys laid out. Let me piggyback on your piggyback, Coop, and, and hand it <laughs> off to Henry. I would wonder if the carcinization, I think it's what it's called, the carcinization model, where there is this tendency towards a kind of crab-like evolution. Is that what you're talking about, Coop? Yeah, it's just, it's you all- see, I, I forget if it's a, it co-evolution. There's some term that I, escapes me at the moment, but it ah. describes this process of all these sort of different divergent lineages relative to biology that all wind up making crabs sort of crab the, yeah the crab yeah. the crab what it would be the physiognomy or not really that but what uh the morphogenesis of, morpho of the yeah crab. the kind of morphological yeah exactly the morphological structure of the crab seems yeah. to be one that gets repeated in nature numerous times my piggybacking would be you know henry you have this really wonderful exposition of phase space and phase portraits in your book on hegel and Deleuze, Ooh, interesting. and you sort of work through you have these diagrams of the attractors. So is there a sense in which like the crab form is this sort of evolutionary attractor for these different vectors of morphogenesis? (laughs) Open question, an open question, totally open question. You you can totally just riff off that. This is not meant as like a... I'm wary of saying too much because I'm not an evolutionary biologist. (laughs) (laughs) It's just my hobby. It's not my day job. (laughs) I seem to remember, I mean, the example I read was the, the structure of the eye uh, which obviously is also evolved evolves in in a whole series of different places you know mm-hmm. so i have eye structures that, that have a different genetic origin to you know mammalian mm-hmm. eye structures and yeah i mean it was to do with you know while the eye is this incredibly complicated structure you know in terms of the kind of folding this kind of process of like, invagination and folding that takes place if you understand it in those terms rather than in terms of the metric moving of particles within a space you know instead of a kind of cartesian model mm-hmm. you take a model of kind of top topology yeah then you know what appears to be a very complex structure 
becomes something quite simple and, and it is kind of attracted by, you know, it, it operates in a quite small phase space. So I don't know how this ties in with the GFR Santalea stuff well enough. <laughs> it does tie in with the notion of as soon as one moves from a kind of a metric to a non-metric understanding of the sort of formation of structure, mm-hmm. then certainly in the case of the eye, a structure that appears to be very complicated and, you know, it seems shocking, not just that it exists, but that it kind of appears at multiple times in different paths. That kind of apparent coincidence sort of falls away and one understands that a, a few very simple topological modifications leads to, leads to the same structure. So I imagine something similar happening in the case of crab structures. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure that I've read this somewhere. Yeah. Carcinization was the right terminology. Okay. I, I just pulled. I just. I, just <laughs> I, I, I pulled that out of my etymological ass. So I. I, I know. I'm sure I read it somewhere. But uh. But yeah, you know, yeah. cancer, the crab. I. I'm, I was thinking my Latin reptilian brain. <laughs> this is you mean your crustacean-like brain? Yeah. Rather. That's there. You go. And uh, uh, I guess to round the circle uh, <laughs> for a second, so we can move to contour, just move on. I'm wondering now. Now you're making me think because I have to go back and look at a thousand plateaus. Whether or not the Cuvier Santelaire debate that they, I assume Guattari added something, but this yeah. feels Deleuze that that debate in A Thousand Plateaus is maybe a proxy for his own discussion or his own beef with Hegel. You kind of put that thought in my head. So now I've got to, i got to track that down at some point. Yeah, sure. it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's always this problem with Deleuze and Deleuze Guattari that quite often lots of different things are happening at the same time. Yeah. But I think, um, yeah, something very similar happens with the state nomad. You know, mm-hmm. what's, what's going on there? Well, you know, the, the nomadic formation, in a sense, operates like this kind of non-metric counterpart to the organicist model of the state. And, you know, you have a sort of similar claim that, you know, okay, so there is this kind of representational moment, but there's this kind of non-representational moment that forms a necessary counterpart to it. And that these two, these two operate together. And, I mean, I think it would be easy to read what's going on there in terms of a critique of the hegelian model of the state mm, in the war machine yeah and um, that's clearly a part of what's going on it's not it's not all of it but that's in the background and it's the same kind of question it's the question of you know of course there are state structures of course there are organisms but there's this kind of other level that is a, a necessary counterpart and it reminds me of um i think you you also quote this in the Maybe in both books, but uh, the form of recognition that Deleuze, that's one of the targets of Deleuze in, in order to secure a concept of difference, right? It's, it's uh, mm-hmm. sort of that this presupposition of everyone knows what it means to think, whatever, that this form of recognition, it somehow spontaneously resurrects the church model, the state model. Maybe this was in your essay on, on Feuerbach in the Image of Thought. Maybe I'm conflating those two. But yes, this kind of dovetails with what you're saying about the critique of the state model and sort of, you know, Prussia as the sort of highest perfect form of of the state or something (laughs) like this, right? Yeah, completely. And it's interesting to see what indifference and repetition comes in as a, but in a way, a question about method, you know, do we need Mm. an encounter that breaks with representation? You know, like, Mm -hmm. does there there need to be some moment where representation is is fractured Mm -hmm. in order for philosophy to begin? And, you know, Hegel says no, because representation is just kind of we move through this dialectical process and as long as we begin, we'll kind of end up there. And, you know, the, the state is presupposed 
Right. In the, in the first, in you know, the beginning of the phenomenology of spirit, you know, when I'm here and you're there, and you know, there's just I'm just looking at you as a pure this. In that, the state is already there for Hegel because interesting. Well, whereas for Deleuze, philosophy begins by this process of a kind of encounter that shatters our representations, but then it it kind of moves in a thousand plateaus in a really you know quite surprising way to an interesting political theory. You know, sort of it moves from being a question about philosophical method in difference of repetition with this sort of throwaway comments to a really interesting account in A Thousand Plastos where it seems there's a much deeper justification for that claim. The question of exteriority, right, of the war machine. Mm. And um, I guess to keep with this thread for a moment is, as you pointed out in several places, obviously, I just mentioned your essay on um, Feuerbach and the image of thought. What I think is, is interesting is that, what is it, in 94, a year before his death, the Liz has the... English preface to the translation of Difference of Repetition, and he's kind of ending this little note, if you will, it's like a page and a half, where he's he's like, well, you know, I look back and I guess the one good thing in this book, which is very humble of him, I guess, or understated, <laughs> is uh, the chapter on the image of thought. It's, for him, it's the one concrete aspect of Difference of Repetition that he thinks informs the work that he does with Guattari. And so I'm thinking about you know, we had a conversation with a friend of the show, Will, a few months back, where we are discussing a lot of the times Deleuze without Guattari gets pegged as sort of a apolitical or a sort of, whether it be a pacifist or just not concerned with politics. But the, the chapter on the image of thought is, in my view, very much concerned with a kind of, if not an ethical, a very clearly political question, problem for what it means to think. And and whether one bases it, as you were saying, on predication, judgment, representation, that need for for questioning this sort of inborn, innate, sort of pre-given knowledge of or understanding of what it means to think, what it means to be, what it means to know. And I think that it has political implications that do then get carried over into a thousand plateaus just to defend Deleuze from this sort of this one reading that seems to make him into a kind of either a centrist or just a disinterested metaphysician. There is there is some grit to that. What do you think about this? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, if you look at the Rhizome Plateau, mm-hmm. if it's a plateau, the Rhizome introduction. The introduction, um, <laughs> yeah. One or many wolves has got a number two next to it. So Yeah, I, that's true. When you look at the Rhizome, then you get this sense that this sort of hierarchical uh, structure of knowledge that operates in terms of subordination mm-hmm. naturally develops structures of organization where the ways in which people communicate are defined by the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so who one can talk to and the lines of communication are defined in advance. And the aspect under which one communicates is the role one plays in that right. system. And this this all stems from an account of thinking as uh, operating in terms of good sense and common sense, you know, mm-hmm. the subordination of qualities under subjects. I think there's that there's a really clear line there that runs through. It's almost amazing that you know, when you read Difference of Repetition, it does come across as quite an a, apolitical text in many ways. But then, you know, A Thousand Plateaus really draws out these moments in a way that I think is... Um, Really surprising, really powerful. I've been really struck by it. 
The other place I'd, I'd say that's interesting is um, obviously Deleuze is very committed in terms of their struggle in Palestine. And that does run through. And, you know, there are pieces like, there's a piece um, that didn't make it to the English translation of Two Regimes of Madness on Arafat called The Grandeur of Arafat, which is a very strong political work. And there are these moments as well where, you know, he is directly political. But I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Deleuze is also far more interested in theoretical problems than Atari is, for instance. And it shows their different educations, their different upbringings, their different professions they were practicing for, right? There is a sense in which when Guattari is thinking of the death drive, he's not necessarily thinking of the syntheses of time or something like this, right? He's mm-hmm. He is mm-hmm. trying to think about, um, for example, he's thinking about an institutional death drive and he's wanting to inject a, the death drive into, excuse me, into institutions. The quote I always bring up from Anti-Oedipus, where they're citing Nietzsche's churches, armies, states, which of these dogs wants to die? And this is this, this Guattarian-inspired notion of the death drive that's institutional, whereby institutions won't sediment into a kind of hyper-order and fixity and, and hierarchy and resistance to change, but whereby they can suffer dissolution and death in order to allow for becomings and things like this. You know, I, I do think that though they share common problematics, but they may have different methods. They may have di- even, they may not even agree on their concepts, right? They, they kind of famously don't have the same notion of body without organs, which who does, right? <laughs> there doesn't need to be perfect agreement between thinkers in order for there to be a, a sort of encounter in order to generate thinking within thought. I mean, even, even your way of working with uh, Stephen Holgate kind of brings this to the fore and brings this out that cultivating the census, if you will, can also be be productive. Yeah, and there's a there's a really good the Kleist piece. Deleuze and Guattari are interesting. Kleist, and it's interesting because yeah. Kleist's not there in the early work, and then Kleist appears, as far as I can see, if I remember rightly. Mm-hmm. But you know, Kleist talks about this kind of dialogical form of writing, and rather than one where you know we share we kind of share basic concepts and we go back and forth. This kind of Feuerbachian notion that we operate within a shared structure of, of reason and we get rid of the mindness. You know, I suppose right. we call a species conversation. The, you know, co- the communication, <laughs> the communication aspect. Yeah, exactly. Rather than do that, you know, Kleist has this notion that, you know, he's thinking through a problem when he talks to his sister about it, who knows nothing about these problems. And just in the process of talking, you know, something comes out. I mean, you guys have been doing lots of readings, uh, you know, reading group structures. And I think for me, like that's an experience that's really common in reading groups. You know, part of it is you work together with the other person and all the structures of recognition. And then there are these moments where you kind of ramble on. The other person stutters a bit because they don't really know what you're talking about. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, like it all falls into place. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's that there's that kind of structure of dialogue which is one where you know you're both talking in in monologues mm-hmm. but yet the presence of the other person somehow brings out something that's that's not there yeah um, so i mean that it's not all you know thank goodness not all reading groups operate like that all of the time but it is an important moment and yeah i think as you say you know you don't need to agree on basic concepts for these collaborations you know what's important is what what comes out you know what what it does i suppose sometimes now this is this kind of 
don't know why I keep using the word this dovetails. This this kind of connects nicely with one of the questions I had, which you know we're kind of moving in rhythms of uh, of sort of going deep into detail, but also coming to the surface and making it light and personal. And you know, I had the question for you that just kind of spontaneously came to my head, and I almost didn't include it, but I I think it's a it's sort of a fun place to <laughs> touch on, which is. You know, I asked you about your favorite turns of phrase, terms, concepts, and then potentially some that are frustrating. And on the frustrating side, I mentioned dark precursor, which luckily is, I'm not even sure if it shows up in logic of sense. It may show up once or twice, but in difference repetition, it shows up in order to, I think, find a way of talking about this element that allows series to resonate and also allow for clothed repetitions underneath bare repetitions if you will Mm. but the one turn of phrase that i was thinking that i've been thinking about a lot and it this just happened recently is this notion of that deleuze at least in different repetition uses several times is this notion of deserving this notion of for me the most famous or the most the one that sticks in my head is um you know problems have the solutions they deserve and i think that you know, what we were just kind of talking about in in the dialogue, some of what's going on is trying to determine a problem, right? Even if you don't agree on concepts like body without organs, Deleuze and Guattari didn't, and yet their divergence can converge on focusing on a problem, right? Which would be, you know, whether it be subjectivation or stratification, however you want to talk about it. Or the organization of the organs, right? You know, rather than against the organs themselves, et cetera. So I guess that was just my segue in giving sort of my side. I wanted to, to know a little bit about what are some of the things you're passionate about in the Delizian corpus? <laughs> That's a very big question. I, I, I agree. I agree with the problem deserving thing is really interesting. I mean, it's, it's really key as far as, you know, that, I mean, if you've taught, there's that experience. And I mean, Deleuze talks about this of, in you mark a student essay and you know the, the problems with bad student essays aren't that they say things that are false right. it's that they they kind of say things that are like irrelevant or accidental yeah. and you know it's it's really tricky we we have this this course where the students write four or five hundred word essays in really mm-hmm. short essays yeah and they find it really hard because they don't know what things that are true to include in what things that are true not to include because you know they haven't reached that level i mean of course they want you want them to say true things but there's this extra level of understanding you know some other criterion by which one distinguishes what to say and what not to say other than just saying true things and you know that sense or as you say this field of problems so yeah absolutely i think it's really fundamental notion my friend uh, jeff bell you know just doing tons and tons of really good work on on all of this stuff and to do with problems and what is philosophy as well but yeah no, i mean for me i mean I, I like i say i'm turning to a thousand plateaus and there's loads of stuff that i kind of half understand mm-hmm. and, you know, it's just i mean there's nothing you know there are things like the notion notions of overcoding axiomatic i've got like a sense for them but you know i i don't feel happy with my grasp of them you know i don't feel like i know what exactly what they mean and you know i'm guessing there it's a, it's a process so but i mean the stuff the stuff in the early work i think that i i'm really passionate about i think those phrases of uh from the poetic formulae from Kant are really fundamental to me so you know the eye is another which yeah. is that's the phrase that 
Sartre uses in his essay Transcendence of the Ego in pretty much the same context. You know, he says I is another. And it's uh it's similarly about the way in which you know the ego structure is secondary to some other process of thinking. And then this uh time is out of joint, I think, is yeah, yeah. Beautiful. It's a you know, it's like you tie it into Kant's. And you suddenly see that you know this project that runs all the way through Deleuze's work of logic of multiplicities, you know, in a sense, in a very, you know, in a very preliminary sense, but an important sense, it's there already in Kant. You know, Kant has a logic of multiplicities because intuitions and concepts do not have the same structure. And you know, the question is, how do we relate intuitions and concepts? And you know, what's what's the project of say running through? so much of Deleuze's work was how do we relate continuous and discrete multiplicities? Mm. How do we relate these different multiplicities that, that seem to have nothing in common? The um, virtual and the actual, would that be a, another way of phrasing it? The Yeah. I mean, or, or, you know, and in the later work, you know, you have these discussions of, you know, how can we maintain the different distinction of the nomadic and the state, for mm. instance, mm-hmm. but recognize that they're always in interaction with each other? Yeah. You know, so how can they how can they be distinct but yet able to form assemblages? So I think you know these questions, the notion that um, time is out of joint, if in relation to Kant, really signals this moment whereby time is understood as different from the sort of structures of judgment. So for Plato, the world of appearances, all this stuff moving around, is a moving image of eternity, and time really is just noise. It's just noise that prevents us from understanding the kind of atemporal structure of things. And with Kant, time suddenly takes on a positive significance as being an intuition. Yes. And then you trace it through to Deleuze. And, you know, for Deleuze, underneath structures of representation, underneath the conceptual structures, what do we find? We find intensity, which is a sense, in a sense, just time unfolding itself. Yeah. So it moves from being a place where things happen, which it is for Kant, to this kind of passive synthesis. So that notion of time being out of joint runs all the way through is fascinating to me. And the fact it's there in um, Sartre as well. You know, so Sartre recognises this too. For Sartre, you know, consciousness in a sense is just time unfolding itself. So a lot of this stuff is already there in, in Sartre. So those two phrases, I think, are amazing. What Deleuze draws from Kant I just, you know, it's astounding. It's really mm. astounding. I go back to it all the time. It's not just Deleuze, it's, you know, it's there in, well, not really Bergson, but it's there in Sartre and it's there in Meliponti, Derrida. But that notion that there are these resources in Kant that can be used to, I suppose, provide an alternative to Hegel, you know, that when we reach a contradiction, it may be a transcendental illusion rather than a dialectical moment of sublation. Like, brilliant. It's like Jesus Christ, yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> and and he, but he he points out he points out in the conclusion he points out four of the transcendental illusions, which there is this tetralogy throughout different repetition, the identity analogy, resemblance, opposition. But he he also says it in a different way in terms of the four transcendental illusions. It's obviously he the first. Says, I, he says like representation is a site of transcendental. Yes. Illusion. Yes. What I've always taken him to mean, and it's been a long time, and I've never really, I mean, it'd be interesting to look back and see if I'm right about this. But, you know, the the transcendental illusion, I've always taken it to be, is that 
everything can be encompassed within representation. It's not that we can't sort of talk in terms of properties, you know, we do, and it's, you know, it's vague, it's not, but it's the notion that all determination operates in terms of prejudication, you know, that's the transcendental illusion, that that kind of encompasses all, all ways in which we can talk about something being determinate. And so this, this is, I think I pointed this out in one of the questions, which was sort of running a thread running through your work is, which culminates in your most recent work is, is judgment, which also is obviously intimately tied to predication. And so perhaps by pointing out representation as a transcendental illusion, as a site of transcendental illusion, Deleuze is trying to carry the torch from Artaud with this notion of to have done with judgment. Is that sort of a fair way of characterizing his sort of pushback against predicative model? Yeah, I think so. I tend to have stuck to the weaker claim that Deleuze wants to claim that the grounds of judgment are uh, cannot be understood in terms of judgment themselves. So, you know, the sense mm. that we make, although it may be expressed in terms of judgments, isn't, you know, it, it doesn't, isn't grounded in judgment, you know. Mm. So mm -hmm. if you look at, let's make a good example. So for Bergson, for instance, you know, you have this notion of sort of duration as being the, the kind of fundamental structure of the world. Yeah. Well, then, you know, we, at least in the early works, you know, we can't help but express those durational structures in terms of language. Mm -hmm. so, so the question really is, you know, one of showing that the grounds of judgment, you know, they don't they don't touch down in the structure of reality. It's difficult to know. And you've got the stuff on stammering in Deleuze, where yeah, he yeah. Say that we somehow move beyond that. But they write books with pretty conventional sentence structure so yeah there's the real question i mean for me the question is one of what's the distribution behind the kind of the terms we use is it is it a kind of sedentary distribution mm -hmm. where there's a kind of repetition of those structures or is it one where you know beneath this kind of surface there's a there's a kind of a play of forces or dynamics or however you want to phrase it now this gets me to a question i know that that peaked Coop's interest, and so I'm going to toss this off to Coop. But one of the things was about the dice throw. Coop, do you? I, I know that you, this was one of your few comments in the the sections that you pointed out. But this this notion of whether it be the ideal game or the game of chance, I'm not sure exactly what captured your your interest, Coop. Well, I, it reminded yeah. me a lot of, I guess, the idea of the potentiality of the egg and sort of with the die all of the potentials are already pre-inscribed onto the surface of the die before it's ever cast into motion or whatever before it's ever before reality sort of ever folds back in itself to realize this differentiation if you mm -hmm. you know that might not be the i don't know if that's the right word i was looking for but that's what i thought was sort of compelling idea was the way that it showed how I guess the sort of, I guess the intensity is part of the involved in the, the throw, I guess the thrownness, you know, that recalled Heidegger as well <laughs> a little bit um, that I thought was kind of interesting, but yeah, I, I guess multi, the real thing that I thought was fascinating was kind of how that was an analog for the egg and, you know, sort of untapped potentiality or universal, well, not universal, but sort of infinite potential, but also with this notion of everything being pre-inscribed, which goes back to you know we just did a 
episode recently on Mayasu and we were mm. discussing, you know, knowledge. Is it, you know, is it something that's created or is it something that's uncovered? Which I think perhaps is maybe what this the ground that this is sort of digging into relative to the die. Like I said, with all of those potentials already being inscribed before the motion is ever, ever takes place. That perhaps is the transcendental illusion there, right? The sort of the inscription on the surface of the die. I don't know. I'm just kind of speculating here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a really, I mean, it's like these these passages, I mean, the ones in Difference Repetition about the dice throw, I think are some of the least understood. And in many ways, you know, they're, they're quite phenomenological, right? You know, because we have an encounter that orients us to a problem in a certain way. And, you know, depending on where one is, one's orientation to this this kind of virtual idea will be different. The central claim is, I mean, it goes back, I think, to one of the texts I, I really haven't read in a very long time, Nietzsche and philosophy, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's whether one relates to the world in terms of the sort of virtual multiplicity and operates on that level, you know, becomes worthy of the event, or whether one sees it in terms of, you know, the kind of actual structures that we find around us and i mean everything is there in the virtual multiplicity but it's also the case i think i mean on my reading it's the case that while ideas are objective it's still the case that they're kind of situated so the knowledge in terms of what we say and the sense we make is always going to be an orientation it's always going to be a particular section of chaos i suppose to use the later terms mm-hmm. you know so it's always going to be the case that there's a creative act which is similar to the to the metallurgist you know it does a similar thing in uh, the one chapter but yeah there's always, there's always a selection that means that the knowledge we have is a sedimentation of a particular aspect of the problem or of the dice throw but you know the question is really whether one orientates oneself towards results or this kind of process of generation so there's there's that kind of i think you're asking two related questions you know one about knowledge which is a really interesting question about the fact that the knowledge comes from virtual ideas but yet overflows or mm-hmm. virtual ideas overflow the knowledge we have and there's another question about almost like an ethical orientation and i think you know this is goes right back to the reverse of plato you know because for plato we orient ourselves in this world of appearances to static structures beyond that world of appearances and that's what allows us to make sense whereas for Deleuze we find ourselves in a world of representation and we orient ourselves towards the dynamic processes of becoming that underlie those representations yeah so it's almost like a negative image and the question is so we orientate ourselves towards the intensive pre-individual fields that's generating these these apparently determinate structures like the, the end results of the diastro, or do we orientate ourselves in this field of becoming towards what appear to be the, the permanences that are kind of there? Uh, so those are the two ethical... No, that's, 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 I do like this, and, it, and just to go back to the two um, aspects you brought up, the, the related questions, the one epistemological or nauseological and the other ethical, you know, this notion of, you know, for Deleuze, knowledge, which, you know, obviously he's associating with someone like uh, Aristotle or Hegel with absolute knowledge. Mm-hmm. He wants to put that on the domain of representation, on the domain of consciousness. But for 
Deleuze with this notion of a differential unconscious, he's, this is why he sort of gives the alternative of this, of learning and sort of raises it above. Mm-hmm. And that's the true, for him also, power is not in knowledge and it's not in, it's not in sort of the rote memorization or solving of problems that are already handed to us. It is in the power to determine problems for ourselves, right? And I think that that's more intimately related to this this work of of learning. I know that that's kind of spinning the whole question that Cooper and I had about <laughs> That's but- really good, though, because that goes to like, just wanted to mention Sterner a little bit, right? Because that's what his whole thing is like, the idea of not letting ourselves be arranged but arranging ourselves or whatever. Uh, yeah and i also good. think that maybe this image of thought thing you know you go a little bit i mean we discussed this a bit but i think maybe where deleuze and sterner would dovetail is just like broad at the just broad level of being like this kantian critique but i thought that was kind of interesting that you know he does engage with feuerbach which i didn't really anticipate which i think is kind yeah. of interesting and then even goes to you know, I don't know if this is relevant, but the way that Deleuze refers to Sterner in Nietzsche and philosophy is that he shows the heart of the dialectic to be nihilism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's the transcendental illusion that is the is that the critique of the Hegelian dialectic itself? Is that is that's the illusion, this opposition of identities or whatever? Is that a sort of transcendental illusion? And that's maybe where the critiques dovetail. But again, I'm I'm wildly speculating as always. Yeah, no, I think I think it's really interesting. I think Taylor's right that all of that stuff I stumbled through about the dice throw, I think the learning knowledge structures in the image of thought chapter is the, is the way to go to illuminate that stuff. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean the transcendental illusion in the in the dialectic, I think Bergson's really good on this, actually. Mm-hmm. And no mm-hmm. one reads Bergson on the German idealist because he's, he doesn't say very much. Okay. But, you know, he just says you can't reconstruct the particular from a series of universals knitted mm. together. And I think Deleuze kind of sees Hegel as trying to trying to do that. You know, I mean the, the real the real issue, I suppose, is is the good nature of thought. That's yeah. really hard. the yeah. natural light, the good nature of thought, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'd that's... say that's you know that's where really well the phenomenology of spirit begins with, right? You know, Hegel Hegel says, well, you know, this problem with Schelling, you know, Schelling develops this system, but the problem with Schelling is he kind of begins with this notion of sort of pure identity, whereas what we what we need to do is begin with something that you know the man on the street would take up and would would sort of fully understand. So you know, for Hegel, philosophy begins with that which any person with common sense would agree to, you know, which is just that there is this form of consciousness, which is a form of certainty whereby I am situated across from like a this, which is a pure thisness, you know, I'm not going to say anything about it, but I can at least be certain (laughs) there's a this there. And, you know, Hegel goes on and, and, you know, runs, runs through and shows or tries to show how that develops into this whole system of philosophy. Whereas, for Deleuze, I think that belief in the good nature of thinking is is really problematic at the outset. Yeah. I mean, yeah. more specifically, I think what he gets from Schopenhauer is uh, from Schopenhauer from Feuerbach is this notion of that Hegel's at least presupposed the notion of abstraction as well. Yeah, yeah, and the notion of transition, which is obviously uh, Kierkegaard's claim that transition is something that the dialectic begins with as a category rather than which the dialectic allows to unfold dialectically because it can't allow it to unfold dialectically because to unfold dialectically is to already have the category of transition interesting 
I was actually going to ask you about Kierkegaard because you have mentioned, I believe, what you one of your essays that I didn't get to read, but that I wanted to was Kierkegaard and the logic of sense. But I was thinking about this notion that Kierkegaard, with the example of Abraham that he brings up to sort of <laughs> against Hegel, this notion of a teleological suspension of the ethical, right? Where it's the singular versus the universal. I think for Deleuze, this is kind of how he he gets to it, right? Where there is a sense in which the singular is sort of violated by the universal, whether it be the generality of laws or, or whatever. And I remember reading Fear and Trembling as an undergrad, and one of the interesting ways that my professor sort of brought it up is there's a sense in which the singular sort of, the reason why the ethical towards ends has to be suspended is if Abraham goes to the community and communicates his desire to sacrifice his son, it comes off as madness, right? There is no way in which it can be mediated. Sorry, I'm just riffing that. That wasn't even really a question, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it, you know, another way of reading that notion of the immediate and the immediate in Kierkegaard is that, you know, Kierkegaard will say that Hegel kind of replaces the notion of the immediate with a kind of representation of immediacy. So the immediate is that which is outside of the dialectical. And it's the same for Deleuze, you know, there's this moment that's outside of the dialectical. Now what Hegel does is he replaces this immediate that is kind of prior to or outside of or beyond the dialectic with a dialectical moment that is the immediate. And there's already, always already within the dialectic. And as soon as you've done that, you're kind of, you know, you're fucked. You know, you're kind of you're already on, that, <laughs> on that dialectical procedure. So I think that's a that's a move that, that Deleuze takes very seriously. You know, that, mm -hmm. that what Hegel does is he does things like replaces real becoming with the representation of becoming, which is already amenable to the dialectic. So becoming kind of falls outside of it's sub-representational, but Hegel begins instead with a representation of becoming, which means that he's already operating within a kind of flat plane rather than the kind of the two levels that Deleuze is always operating with. But I think what's really interesting is that, um, you know, Deleuze's attitude to Kierkegaard, you know, seems to really change from the early works of the late stuff. But his reading of Kierkegaard seems to stay the same. You know, interesting. So the early work, he's very critical because obviously the, the ground of everything is... Um, it's God, you know, it's this relation yeah. of the immediate subject to, to God. And it's almost like a Kantian relation, you know, the immediate, the transcendental subject to the transcendental object is that which is outside of experience that makes experience possible. That's uh, Deleuze's reading of the Abraham-God relation. Right. But while Deleuze keeps this account, what seems to happen is in the early work, he's interested, Deleuze is interested in a very Kierkegaardian project of digging down to the depths beneath representations and you know the critique of Kierkegaard is that Kierkegaard goes to the wrong depths yeah uh, he has the wrong god not the Spinozist god but this other one but in the in the later work Deleuze seems to be a lot more pro-Kierkegaard which seems to coincide with Deleuze's own rejection of this notion of depth interesting Kierkegaard becomes a lot more amenable yeah the project is no longer discovering you know this kind of this ground of some kind is unground, but it yeah. becomes very different. 
when I look at, say, the introduction to different repetition, where he's sort of yoking Kierkegaard and Nietzsche together and yet diverging them, as you say, in this critical moment, right, the, it's dancing versus leaping or whatnot. But he does seem to, to find something redeemable, <laughs> not to pun on the God stuff, but he does seem to find good things in Kierkegaard, just that there's a there's like a shared problematic for Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, but the there's something wrong with the premises or the conclusions. I'm I'm not exactly sure how to say it, but that is interesting. Your point about um, the shift where Deleuze comes back and finds mm-hmm. more positive than I'm not sure it's paradoxical, but more positive things to say about Kierkegaard. I think that's interesting, and I suppose that the ethical part that um, Cooper was getting to with the Dicero or with Delusion Sterner was this made me think about you sort of kicked it off in my head this you know, Deleuze says not to be unworthy of what happens to us. But he also talks about what you brought up with the time out of joint, as you bring out in relaying Deleuze's sort of tearing with Hamlet, is, you know, there is this interesting thing where Hamlet is not, in the first time, as Deleuze will kind of say it, we're not worthy of the event. We're not equal to the event. There's the second time where we have to, there has to be this becoming equal to the event whereby we can act. Because as he points out, as you kind of relay it, Hamlet knows what he needs to do. He knows he needs to act. He's just, it's impossible, right, in this first time. And it takes time, right, for this, um, for this becoming equal. I suppose that that's, in my mind, I'm probably jumping a lot of steps, but in my mind, this is, you said it very nicely, it's not about being concerned with the results of any one particular throw, right? But it is sort of affirming the whole of chance, if you will, right? It's, what does Meyer may say, like the the throw of the dice will not abolish chance. I'm totally butchering that. This is the thinking of the dice throw as amor fati, or as sort of affirming the eternal return. And I think that that has ethical implications where it's, there can be these degrees of freedom, but at the same time, in affirming the whole of chance and affirming eternal return, one is able to confront whether it be nihilism or whether it be resentiment, right? Whereby we are dissatisfied with certain throws of, of chance to the point where we don't want to affirm chance at all, right? I think, I think that's that's a deeply ethical tension in the way in which Deleuze mobilizes Nietzsche, for example. There are all sorts of questions around political action <laughs> coming out of that, those kinds of readings, which I think I don't really know what the response is. You know, if one moves to affirming the whole of chance, it does sort of feel like, you know, one has to be quite careful politically because, you know, Peter Hallward, it's not empty, that work where he he sort of says that Deleuze takes us out of this world. I think he's he's pushed it, he pushes it too far. But I, yeah, no, I think I think it's it's difficult. I think the early work is difficult to know how to take it ethically. But I yeah. think something I think you're on the right track. Deleuze is pushing a line very similar. The text I think is is really weird on this is um the one on Tournier because yeah on Friday because Robinson kind of comes out there as this um this kind of almost you know heroic figure right. who performs this kind of exercise in extreme enforced you know what Deleuze calls elsewhere like methodological solipsism, right? <laughs> you know, his identity is is destroyed in a sense, but he becomes the idea of the islands that he's he's lost on, you know. And um, 
you know, it's difficult to know. It's a very strange position to end up in that something like, you know, Tornio's Robinson is um, an ethical hero. But it seems like in the early work, that's that's at least a moment of what Deleuze is doing. So this kind of affirming the whole of chance and becoming equal to the event material, I'm still not entirely clear. Yeah. <laughs> I I, say, I, I'm still not clear what he means. There, there is a sense in which uh, someone like Laura Well, for example, will see in Deleuze's commitment to this affirmationism as naive. And mm -hmm. I, I think that perhaps Deleuze himself might even agree with that because there is this refrain in Nietzsche about um, sort of this movement whereby we confront resentment, we confront nihilism, and we're able to affirm in a way, in such a way as to grant back to innocence or grant back to becoming a certain innocence, right? And I think that that's, that's also the shared impulse with Spinoza about sort of cultivating active affects and sort of sort of destroying the sad passions, et cetera. But, you know, I do think that, that a lot of this, this talk about affirmationism becomes energized and perhaps militant in a way with his work with Guattari, such that Deleuze, even though he's very aware of this problem, avoids falling back into, say, like a beautiful soul that, that might be a, at least a, a counter reading that Hegel would give, right? That that oh well you just you just want to affirm all differences and they reconcile even though that's not that's not really what Deleuze does but that could be a, a one way of of trying to to counter Deleuze even if it's unfair to him but it's a monstrous baby but it might still belong to Deleuze right you know that's that's what I would yeah. say yeah well you know maybe that's your mustachioed Deleuze you were looking for earlier on yeah maybe. yeah <laughs> maybe it's, yeah it's out of this world Deleuze maybe you're absolutely right Deleuze. you're absolutely right there's um there is this these kind of counterpoints and the, the crack similarly you know that one doesn't follow it too deep and just that notion you know that this kind of the this impulse towards death is an impulse towards a kind of keeping our representation supple yeah rather than one of you know destroying them i mean there's that moment too which i think is really key you know kind of an attempt to avoid sedimentation rather than a complete destruction. Don't destratify too quickly, right? And all these words of caution that to bring back Voldemort for a second, <laughs> that Nick Land kind of bemoans in A Thousand Plateaus, where it's there are these words of caution, there's these, uh, you know, absolute deterritorialization is sort of secondary to relative deterritorialization, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that, that you're right. I mean, there is the sense in which the way in which Deleuze and Guattari take as a given that we're stratified. And the point is to try to negotiate these degrees of freedom whereby we can de-stratify, de-subjectivate, de-signify, if you will, in strategic ways, accords with groping towards, at the limit, perhaps a thought without image, but at least calling into question traditional dogmatic orthodox images of thought that sort of, mm -hmm. uh, that shackle us to to take in representation as a given or as that which already determines our means of navigating problems. And I think that that's where, I think that's part of the caution, right? Because doing away with representation altogether is obviously a kind of a false dream. It may be itself a kind of illusion. And yet at the same time, the critique of representation, as you've kind of put it, is still a kind of a fundamental and not merely theoretical. I do think that it has practical 
outcomes Mm -hmm. and is not merely a theoretical ivory tower intellectualist move. I do think that this is perhaps the political edge to transcendental empiricism, just to bring in that, which itself is a monstrous term. Would you agree that for Kant or Hegel, this would be a, a contradiction in terms or a paradox, that phrase? Yeah, possibly. For I'll tell you who, I mean, coming on to talking about these these kind of claims, the person who it does fit with quite nicely is, once again, it's Sartre. You know, I okay. think Sartre's quite happy to be called a transcendental empiricist. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like a lot of the stuff you're talking about, I think there's this notion of a group infusion. In yeah. Sartre, which I think, you know, is is very close to what Deleuze and Guattari certainly are, are aiming at. Subject you know, which, groups. Which, yeah, something that's kind of uh, not, you know, that falls outside of, of representation, but still is structured in a determinate manner. But yeah, no, I think I think um, transcendental empiricism, the whole notion there's an encounter at the heart of philosophy is something that fits very poorly with um, Hegel. I think with Kant, it's slightly more... You know, for Kant, all thinking is discursive. So all thinking relates to a a manifold of intuition. Yeah. Now, that's not enough for Deleuze, but it (laughs) does mean that there's something brute outside of the categories which thinking requires. So for Kant, there's at least this beginning of a recognition that thinking involves not simply uh, categories, but something other. Mm. And that categories on their own lead to... um, Transcendental illusions. Uh, yeah. So, I don't think Kant would agree with transcendental empiricism, but he certainly not. You know, certainly wouldn't hold the kind of absolute transcendental idealism of of Hegel, right? Or absolute idealism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. No, it's 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 good, and and we can. I know we've had you for two hours, so we can we can start to wrap up. I know we didn't get to everything, but this is part of the the dialogical. Um, yeah, yeah. process and you know i had off the top of my head I, I can't tell which one is the distinctive point and which one may be ordinary i did say something to cooper and i do want to let cooper ask some things too i did there is this in chapter one i brought this up and you may have seen it where he brings up goya he brings up Rodon, and he talks about he discusses their methods of painting and in English, obviously, the, the term, I think, is translated correctly as charoscuro, this mm-hmm. usage of light and dark and the abstract line. In, in French, it's, it's le clair obscure, right? It's, it's the clear obscure. But later, Deleuze will, he kind of, against Descartes' natural light, he, he breaks up the clear and distinct and makes it the distinct obscure and the, and the, what, the clear confused. We don't have to get into all of that terminology, but I was wondering if you know, I think it's in negotiations or maybe in dialogues where Liz is talking about sort of the history of philosophy as, as, mm. as portraiture. He talks about it in the preface as uh, different repetition as collage. And we know what the fate of the abstract line, which which stays with Deleuze even into A Thousand Plateaus. I'm wondering if there is this sense in which, to kind of paraphrase Laurel, Laurel has this problem where he's like, why hasn't philosophy been able to create new modes of writing in the way that sort of painting has undergone abstract painting and cubism, the way that geometry has undertaken non-Euclidean means, what has prevented philosophy from these innovations? And I'm wondering if part of Deleuze's, if you will, to use a metaphor maybe, is there a sense in which he's trying to articulate 
what would be compared to traditional classical thinking, a sort of abstract philosophy? And is that related to thinking without image? These are just uh, speculations. And again, you don't have to answer definitively. I'm just trying to, what, force sort of a shock to thought, right? The, the violence that generates thinking within that. I'm just trying to sort of yeah, throw, yeah. throw things out there. No, it's really great. I mean, one of the, you know, one of the interesting things about doing this is, you know, you guys are asking lots of questions that are kind of coming from anywhere from like 15 degrees to 180 degrees <laughs> where I normally look at these issues. And so, you know, you're sort of forcing me to kind of stutter my way through answering these questions. And it's really nice in a way. <laughs> in a way, in a way it's not, but in a way it's really nice. But I think um no, I'm I mean, you know, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, I mean the clear obscure. As you say, it's got this kind of Leibnizian mm-hmm. edge where you move from the notion, you know, for we've talked about this loads in other ways, but the clear and distinct for, for Descartes, when you understand something clear and distinctly, you understand its essence. Yeah. And what clear and distinct means is that you've you've delineated it and you've taken what's essential in that thing. Yeah. You know, so this coffee cup, you know, the essence will be coffee cup-like in some way. Now, what Deleuze is talking about there with the distinct obscure and the clear confused is this kind of Leibnizian notion of you know micro perceptions and the the waves yeah so, so yeah. you know if you think about listening to the sea you know that you're listening to the sea and you can hear it but what makes that sound of the sea is this kind of field of elements you know the individual waves none of which you can hear and you're kind of left with this choice he says that there are two styles or two languages i think in philosophy yeah you know there's the there's the um clear confused which is i think this is the right way around the the sound of the ocean as a whole yeah and, yeah. and the distinct obscure which is where you listen to the micro so you, you catch the waves yeah the differentials the totality. yeah and i mean this is really interesting in terms of hegel because you know for hegel you can do both at the same time <laughs> You know, because it's a contradictory structure, but that's fine, you know, because you, you hold these two together. Yeah. Whereas for, for Deleuze, you know, you need to move between these two levels. There's no complete totalized system in one language. You need these yeah. two. So in terms of a new style, yeah, I mean, that that requires a new style. Whether he does it in difference of repetition, I'm not so sure. I mean, the logic of sense does more on this, but... yes. I mean, the, the other thing that's going on in that in that those sections though that's really really bizarre is this notion of the the lightning flash that yeah that differentiates without becoming differentiated, and that seems to me very Merleau-Pontian. You know, it seems interesting the notion of you know very close to Merleau-Ponty's idea of the idea that an object shows itself against a background that remains indistinct. I mean, that's a whole complex question of notions of determination in Deleuze, Merleau-Ponty, and, um, well, just the classical tradition. To come back to your question, yeah, I mean, I think difference and repetition calls for a new style. And I suppose my reading would be that one of the reasons why one has a work like A Thousand Plateaus yes. is because he doesn't actually institute that style. He kind of lays the groundwork for it. Yeah. Difference and repetition, but it, but it has to come later you know, where where you have this kind of attempt to write differently. So in a, in a way, you could say that, you know, the difference of repetition is a setting out of the criteria yeah. for a new form of writing that, that the, is instituted later on. 
the vegetal mode of thinking, as he calls it, right? That the yeah. image of thought heralds. Yeah, I like that. And it takes a collective assemblage, it seems. Uh, it takes an encounter to bring Deleuze out of the traditional exposition. If one can call deficit repetition, repetition traditional, I mean, obviously, the logic of sense, as you said, moves away from that and becomes a little bit more experimental, kind of instituting a type of serialism. But, mm. you know, with the plateaus, with the rhizomatic, the vegetal mode, there is a complete um, innovation. But I'll... I'll um, I'll seed ground. Coop, I wanted you to, to be able to, to jump in with, with some last thoughts. I think my last question would just go towards a little bit of the discussion that Deleuze goes into relative to thermodynamics and how this sort of thermodynamic model falls prey to the transcendental, ultimately illusion, I guess I would say. And the reason that this is such of an, an area of interest for me, just to kind of give a bit of context, is I kind of read I read Freud's take on the unconscious as a sort of having a, at least as a metaphor, like a, a thermodynamic model, right? Like there's intensities in terms of desire and regulation on the body and, and how that sort of works within this. I guess that would be like a closed system. But I think interestingly here, I kind of drew an equivalence relative to entropy being this sort of general equivalency that, I don't know, maybe you could discuss just broadly how Deleuze <laughs> critiques thermodynamics and entropy in particular, and then maybe wrap up and as a secondary discussion would be how this sort of goes towards a linear time relative to entropy and this movement from order to disorder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm happy to talk a little bit about that. I mean, like, once again, you know, I'm not an evolutionary biologist. I'm also not uh, a physicist. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. So I think the text that's really useful, I find really useful is, um, I can't remember which one, but Ian Stewart's work on mm. complexity theory is really interesting on this. And and I think, you know, the, the critique is, you know, Deleuze calls this notion of the kind of peak death of the universe, a kind of transcendental physical illusion. And for Deleuze, it emerges from the notion that we only ever encounter intensity at a particular location in space and time. Okay. You know, so yes. intensity is not, doesn't have a coordinate in space mm. and time, but we encounter it that way. We encounter it as a difference between two things at different locations, you know, like a hot thing and a cold thing. And then, you know, we, we find intensity in this, in this difference between the two. Now, what Deleuze, I mean, the illusion is, I think, really simple. And it, it is that as soon as we see intensity as operating in terms of a difference between two systems in space and time, you know, because we, we see it already instantiated, then in a sense, the only way it can go is to a process whereby that difference is equalised. So, um, you know, there's always going to be a process whereby systems gradually break down. And, you yeah. know, over time, statistically, we end up in a kind of heat death of the universe as brings break down. Now, what Ian Stewart puts forward, and I take it this is very close to Deleuze's point, Ian Stewart says simply, I think I use this in my book, this notion that, um, you know, if you've got a, a child, two birthday parties with five, five, five-year-olds in, and you, you kind of put them together, so you've got one birthday party with 10 five-year-olds in, you know, the latter is going to be far more chaotic than the former. But that's because what you're doing is you're kind of like reducing the number of systems and the number of distinct distinctions. Mm. And what you don't have, you know, the Institute argues that the whole model here 
is one that operates from the 19th century where you have entropic systems and you have the steam engine and it's yeah. already built and it's relating with an environment that's already built. Right. What you can't account for here is the constitution of systems themselves. And that's a kind of important moment whereby, you know, systems are created and then order is introduced or in order is increased. I mean, Deleuze, Deleuze is effectively arguing the same point by saying, we only see int intensity at a particular point. We only see dis differences within extensity. Yes. And once we've done so, they're already organized systems. But intensity is operative prior to extensity in constituting those systems in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because we don't have that part, because we can't represent that part in kind of mathematical terms or in in kind of classical mathematical terms, then our account will always head towards this kind of gradual collapse. Yeah. Whereas once we put the two accounts together, we we instead see you know this kind of fizzy creation of stuff in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same for I think you're absolutely right, Coop, about Freud, that what Freud what Freud's model, if you look at beyond the pleasure principle, is this kind of like gradual room where things go back, trying to get back to this yes. equilibrium state. Now, what Deleuze is instead interested in is the way in which intensity is kind of just fizzing up through things all the time. So you have a much more kind of affirmative notion of death, not as a kind of collapse, but as a process whereby, you know, yeah. like a, a moment of creation. Yeah. This even goes to an anti-Oedipus, their kind of analysis of the development of capitalism, right? Because like we're we start with the system and then we sort of <laughs> are blinded to you know what I mean? We start with the system already mm. operating, and then we're kind of blinded to its... It, it looks natural. It looks like it had to have coalesced in this particular systematic formula, but that's sort of, again, this transcendental illusion. That, yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. But anyway, sorry yeah. to interrupt. I just, That's just kind of, kind of popped in my head. No, absolutely. I'll say it when I was finished. <laughs> <laughs> okay. oh, perfect. I like that point that Cooper makes, uh, you know, that it seems natural, right? Uh, like what yeah. they even say, capital seems natural to the capitalist, blah, blah, blah. But there's necessarily a, needed a, a retrospective, contingent, critical, ironic sort of uh, genealogy of it, if you will. And and this is there to bring up your, when you were saying about one of the difficulties of A Thousand Plateaus was getting into some of the sociological stuff, you know, we've spent time looking at Claster and you know that one of the things that they get from him very much so is this, this critique of an evolutionism of social systems, right? And they even return to him in A Thousand Plateaus and they have like a little dedication to him. He must have, I assume, I'm trying to think, he must have just passed away in between the two volumes of Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus. But yeah, this this critique that there is a natural evolution from pre-state or anti-state, see, it's not even the right word, word to use, anti-state societies, societies against the state to state societies, as though that were a natural mm -hmm. evolution. And, um, you know, that's, for them, that's, that's a red flag and it begs the question. There's something really yeah. interesting there with like, relative to anti-Oedipus and I, I think desire as far as its intensity intensity and I can't think of the word. Well, well, well it's, it's extensiveness. Um I don't extensity, know. Extensity. Really yeah, extensity, right? Really interesting relative to like rupture and creation. Ultimately the ground mm -hmm. is desire and it's extensivity and <laughs> intensity. 
So well, I guess desiring machines and what do they say? Desiring machines and and technical machines are sort of different regimes, right? Yeah, right, right. Now that's They're, interesting relative to thermodynamics and the desiring a machine and how that kind of goes into the the machinic unconscious. But that's a perhaps discussion for another day. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's the cluster stuff. I think is um, I've just been looking at that recently, so it's kind of mm-hmm. oh, nice. fresher than. But I think it's um, yeah. I mean, it's the same issue. I think you guys are right, as with the entropy case. You know what what one does is one gets stuck in the notion that there's one mode of organization. Yeah, and it's the kind of state structure. And as soon as one does that, when something deviates from that mode of organization, it has to be understood as deficient. And right. then you have this notion of like a, an increase in organizational complexity from this deficient mode to this, this more advanced one. Whereas what they argue is, is that there are two forms of organization that are equiprimordial. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, so there's not, it's not the case that the, the kind of archaic is, is a, is a deficient mode of the state. It's right. just an entirely different mode of organization. And that's really what's going on with the entropy stuff in many ways. The idea is that intensity is not just a moment within the extensive, but it's an entirely different mode of organization. And, you know, it's only when one can incorporate both of those that one has a proper account of what's going on. Yeah, I like this because it also reminds me a little bit of uh, of Simon Don when he's criticizing a hylomorphic model, whether it be in the Aristotelian mm-hmm. mode or the even the archetypal model of Plato, but his sort of in a, a very truncated way it's this notion that you can't start with the individual and work back to individuation you're already muddying the whole problem and i think that perhaps this is Deleuze's point with traditional dogmatic images of thought whereby if you try to start with qualities and then work back to intensity you're sort of already rigging the game right no i think that's right and that's um that's the critique of phenomenology as well obviously yeah yeah the same move takes place you know, you get stuck. You get stuck with consciousness because that's where you've begun. I had one last question, but I don't even want you to answer it because I do want you to to enjoy the rest of your evening. The thing that I want to research and I want to know about, and maybe uh, at some point we can discuss this at a later date, was your point that um, for Stephen Holgate, Deleuze remains at the level of the essences or of the level of essence, right, in the Hegelian schema. That was something that that I would love to pick your mind about, but that's a whole other <laughs> podcast, right? But I would want you to maybe say a few words. You've already talked about A Thousand Plateaus in that project. Do you have any other projects or any other research that you're currently doing? And we can kind of end on that note, just to know uh, what you're working on. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose the thing that's kind of really interesting to me at the moment, apart from A Thousand Plateaus, I mean, A Thousand Plateaus is great, so I'm really enjoying that, is, yeah. um, is I'm really interested in the notion of multiplicity in Jean-Paul Sartre, actually, and particularly the oh. early, you know, there's this great early piece called The Transcendence of the Ego, where Sartre kind of argues that consciousness unifies itself without the need of an ego. Yeah. You know, so for Kant, you need a subject to unite experience. Uh, for Sartre, that's not the case. Consciousness unifies itself. And then you think, well, well how is able to do that? And, it, and it's not really being discussed in the literature much. But he has this quote where he says that... There are two different ways of seeing, which doesn't quite say this, but two different ways of seeing organisation. He says that you can see representations as being like flotsam and jetsam on the surface of the ocean. Yeah. Or you can see these different moments of consciousness as being like 
the waves that together constitute the ocean itself. Now, this distinction is um, pretty much the distinction between the extensive and the intensive. Interesting. For, for Deleuze and Guattari, or for Deleuze at least. So, so I'm kind of interested in the way to which, the degree to which, I mean, obviously Deleuze is very clear that this comes from the transcendental field has its roots in, in Sartre, at least in part. The impersonal but, side, right, that he's taking up. The impersonal transcendental field. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, the, so that that has a kind of Sartrean basis, at least in in some sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, it comes from other places too. But I've just sort of become more and more interested in you know seeing what other aspects are there in Sartre, like the notion of the encounter. Yeah, it's fundamental, and this notion of consciousness and evolving exteriority is there. So I'm interested really in in drawing those out, and I don't know how far that goes because. Obviously, at the heart of Sartre's ontology is also negation. Yep, yeah. <laughs> There's this massive stumbling block. But I'm kind of working through that and seeing what can be found there. That's my other project, I would say, at the moment. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, when you were discussing, I believe it's in the, the guide where you discuss the transcendence of the ego as a means of giving some, uh, some tools to deal with Deleuze and Kant. As an aside, you're like, well, it's perhaps unfortunate that Sartre chose to use the term negation or nothingness or <laughs> right. These, yeah. I know that Deleuze, obviously he, some of his first published work is on Sartre. He devoured being in nothingness over a weekend, as he said, which is a feat in itself, right? 600 pages or whatever. And uh, there was, I forget which there's an aside where he, maybe it's in the, he was my teacher where he talks about one of the things he liked about Sartre was this notion of like holes in being or lakes in being, right? Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? There's this, he, he does yeah, see something do. interesting yeah. in Sartre's lack that isn't merely negative, that there is this interesting, perhaps topological imagery that, that interested Deleuze, but he, he sees something yeah. interesting in that. He does. I, yeah, it's ringing a bell, but I, I can't. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, though. I mean, he does. I mean, I know that he talks about that in passing in difference and repetition, mm-hmm. but I think you're I think he talks about it elsewhere too. In difference and repetition, he sort of criticizes Sartre in a way and then just says that Sartre was doing something very different. <laughs> yeah. Like leaves it at that. But yeah, no, absolutely. There are all sorts of weird connections there that I think um are really worth exploring, actually. And I mean Sartre is a fascinating thinker. And I think Deleuze sees something very unusual in him that hasn't been seen by many philosophers since. So I'm I'm kind of interested in. Drawing that out, really, yeah. at some point. It's, that, it's perhaps the uh, the psychedelic, the, the encounter with the psychedelic that gives Sartre a totally different view of consciousness, right? There's There's got to be stepping outside of the sober mind. As Speaking sure of the that. crabs, right? Yeah, yeah. As, and then the crabs, the carcinization, right? The the crabs <laughs> on the Champs Elysees, yeah. There's a, you know, but but it's it's there is that moment in logic of sense where you know Sartre gives a totally different conception of the transcendental field, whereby it's impersonal, and I think that that's such a huge part of um, that's why Cooper and I um, earlier this year we revisited the transcendence of the ego, and I think that there's so much left to left to be unpacked and. Um, so I'm glad to hear that, that those two things are a thousand plateaus in Sartre. I mean, that's that's great. I know that they they write um, critically, but also they have a critique of Sartre and and, a thousand, and anti-Oedipus, but they also have, they no doubt find 
something laudatory in, as you brought up, groups and fusion, that for them that is essential for distinguishing between subjugated groups and subject groups that become so important for them. So I think that you're onto something that there's there's still a lot left to uh, to bring out and start. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that that's, that's what you're working on. If you've looked at the Transcendence of the Ego, I'll go back and uh, dig that out and have a listen. Yeah. To know what you, what you found there. But no, no, thank you. That's um... What would be great is perhaps sometime next year in the spring, we could have you back and, and maybe we'll have uh, a whole new set of questions or some of the questions <laughs> that we didn't get to ask. And, uh, and we, can, we, can, we can continue our discussion. Yeah, that'd be great. All the same questions and different answers. <laughs> yeah, right. just uh, it, just it's, throw it's, the dice. Throw the dice. The, I was about to let say, let the dice where, uh, fall where they may. Yeah, that'd, that's be really, great. that'd be really cool. Yeah, I'd be happy to come back. I'd love to. Henry, it, it's such a pleasure meeting you, and I really enjoyed our conversation. And we just, I want to thank you again for being generous with the time. This episode will probably drop in about two weeks, so we'll be okay. in touch, and we'll we'll let you know. And thanks again, and and honestly, you know, we appreciate you. Thanks to both of you. It's been really fantastic. I've, I've really enjoyed this. It's been really brilliant. So thanks for thanks for hosting this, and like I said, for doing for doing the other ones too. I think it's a it's a really great project for the community that you're doing here. Thanks so much. <laughs> well, we'll let you enjoy the the rest of your night. Cooper and I are gonna stay on just to to talk shop. So we'll let you enjoy the rest of your evening. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you so much. And once again, thanks to Henry Summers Hall. And that will wrap up this edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Radkins. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.